Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. My guest today is one of the great living American writers. 25 years ago, he published his first collection of short stories, Civil Warland in Bad Decline. He has since won the Folio Prize for 10th of December, the Booker Prize for his debut novel, Lincoln in the Bardo, and a MacArthur Fellowship. His latest book, A Swim in a Pond in the Rain, stems from his creative writing class at Syracuse University. It takes seven short stories by Chekhov, Tolstoy, Gogol, and Turgenev, and uses them to examine the art of storytelling. George Saunders, thanks for joining me. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. So I just happened, uh, just before I was reading your book, I was reading uh, Less by Andrew Sean Greer, which is a novel about a novelist. And he says that all author interviews essentially ask the same question, which is just how. Is this book sort of your attempt to uh, answer it? Yes, it's an attempt. Well, it was an attempt to discover how, because I kind of got to a place after that Lincoln book where I was kind of craving a fresh look at fiction and, you know, kind of, in a sense, trying to decide if, you know, since I have, uh, I'm 62 and that means I only have 200 years left to live, I might want to, you know, just recommit. So for me, it was kind of a way of taking a shovel and going into the the sort of fictive graveyard and just saying, well, what is this all about? You know, but, but yeah, I think I'd agree with him on that one. And the short stories arguably had a few golden ages, uh, you know, in different parts of the world. And presumably, you know, obviously in your, um, in your class, uh, you know, you've also taught American short story writers and so on. What is it about the Russians that has fascinated you for so long and made them the focus of this book? The real honest answer is I just love the stories. I've loved them since I was in, you know, a young college kid. Uh, so therefore they teach well. But I think part of that is because they were written when the form was new. So maybe analogous to, you know, rock and roll in the mid sixties or something where nobody really knew what the form was yet. So it could be a lot of things. And also, you know, that, that time in Russian history was crazy. Somehow these writers understood that pressing issues of the day were um, fair game. And in fact, were the only game for fiction, uh, maybe partly because there was censorship too. So they had to kind of talk about the urgent things a little bit at a slant so they wouldn't be censored. So for me, I, I just experienced these stories as being sort of proto storytelling and that they're always about a person uh, in a relatively simple, banal situation. And then in different ways, you sort of become that person. And you studied at Syracuse yourself in that pro- same program 35 years ago? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And your teachers included uh, Tobias Wolf. What did they teach you that informed how you teach your students, how, how you find that there's the best way to, in, to, to engage them and what you want to impart? Oh, that's a beautiful question. I, I think the main thing was they treated us with so much respect, uh, but they didn't pander to us. Everybody understood that they were there to do their work. We were there to do our work. But when they did read one of our stories or interact with us, there was always such a sense of collegiality. You know, you get a bunch of young people who've done this unlikely and probably catastrophic thing of <laughs> declaring that they want to be artists. And then and often in your own world, that's greeted with a little skepticism or horror. Then you go away. In my case, I went from Texas to Syracuse. 
and was greeted there by these people who were like, yeah, okay, if you say so, let's see if you can do it, you know? And there's something about that welcoming that was really good. So I try to do that at Syracuse too, accept people as they are, defects and gifts all rolled in together. And then sort of, I try to mentally position myself as kind of a a loving but firm assistant. These are already amazing writers. We get about 600 applications for six spots. So nobody has to teach them to write. But what we're trying to do is kind of urge them up to that last sheer face on the mountaintop where to get to the top, they have to kind of throw down and be themselves in whatever whatever that means. I guess the, the main thing is do no harm. But it's, very, it's actually, I find it very positive work because there's no guarantee that even a writer that talented will will make it to the top of their individual mountain. So that makes it kind of a lovely enterprise because you're trying to help them achieve what is very, very unlikely anyway. I mean, you talked about your, you know, your, your own time at college. And as a young writer, I noticed there's a bit in this book. There's also, you talk about it in the, in the Brain Dead Megaphone. Is in your sort of early 20s, and I think this might surprise some, some of your readers, you know, that you were sort of into Ayn Rand. And then later as you're becoming a writer, you know, Hemingway is this, is this big sort of beacon for you. Um, and the way you describe the, the stuff that you were trying to write is rather sort of tough and earnest and maybe sort of not allowing in the the humor that a lot of people would associate with you what changed for you that enabled you to find your own voice after kind of you know not finding it for a few years yeah i mean the honest answer is a looming catastrophe you know, we had our daughters and, uh, and I was working as a tech writer in a job that I just, I'd never imagined myself in that kind of job. You know, basically I was running the photocopier somehow just the pressure of, of, you know, the years going by and I, I had financial and, you know, familiar responsibilities that I adored and I took seriously. So I could kind of feel the world, the world not only didn't want me to be a writer, but it kind of would prefer it if I didn't. So there's a bit of a panic that set in and, there was kind of a catastrophic little period where my car broke down and a friend gave me some frank talk about the stuff I was working on in that serious mode and something just snapped, you know, and I, and I, uh, as I talk about in the book, I wrote these really goofy little poems that had humor in them and my wife liked them, you know, the first thing that she'd really genuinely responded to in a number of years that I'd written. So I think this is a subset of the ways that a writer can make progress. There are lots of writers who just make gradual progress. They they know their mode and they stay in it and they improve it. But for me, it was more of a catastrophic break that was psychological. You know, there were all these, I guess, gifts that I had of being funny and pop cultural and that kind of thing that I had sort of, as a, I think as a working class person, I had assumed that those had no place in fiction. And then under the pressure of catastrophe, I was like, well, I have to use what I've got, you know? So it was a a big moment and I haven't really gone back over that path again. I'm still in in that mode. So so before then there was this real feeling that certain things were just not allowed or that people just didn't want to, didn't want them from you. Yes. Or that feeling that literature was a, you know, a beautiful marble mansion and I had to leave all of my real shit behind or they wouldn't let me in, you know, (laughs) or that that was actually the game. The game was to find some exalted part of yourself that had never once appeared in your real life and present that at the door and come in. And of course, it's the opposite. It's it's sort of more of a process of finding out who you are almost at a cellular level, which is equivalent to what do I have that people will listen to? You know, what are my charms that actually are available to other people? So you're, it's almost backwards from what I thought. I thought I decided, a writer decided what he or she wanted to be and then did it. And the world just had to suck it up and take it. But in practice, it was of all the possible selves that you are, which one is the one that people are most interested in? 
And whether you like it or not, that's the card you have to play. So it's, it's, it's somewhat akin mm-hmm. to personality. You know, you might, when I was young, I, I think I saw myself as a kind of, you know, <laughs> very powerful, macho, handsome, old West cowboy or something. And then, you know, about 15, <laughs> you go, huh, that's, <laughs> that's not who I am. And then become, begins the beautiful business of finding out who you actually are based on how the world responds to your authentic energy. And your book did a good job of convincing me that the short story was sort of the highest form of, of fiction in terms of its sort of, you know, the focus, the discipline, um, you know, the frugality, as you say. But I've also that, you know, industry wisdom says, oh, normally they don't sell, discourages new writers from doing them. You're, you're one of a few contemporary writers who, who did initially make your name with, with short stories. But why do you think that, that this form, this kind of wonderful form, does struggle for readers compared to the novel, unless someone's already very established? My first gut instinct was to say that the there's kind of an, a story about the industry reaction, which is exactly as you say. And if you, you know, young writers will always come to me and say, my agent said this, my agent said that. But if you look at the actual world, there have been a number of collections here recently that have just gone through the roof. So I, but I also, I talked to a novelist friend of mine about 15 years ago. He writes both very good novels and very good short story collections. And I said, what's the, you know, what's the difference in the tension between the two? And he thought about it a second and then just said very specifically five to one. <laughs> you know, so, so there is a difference. I think the story form, it, it's got to be learned. You, you have to read a number of them uh, before you understand what a story is and what it isn't. And when you come to that understanding, it's not reductive. It's just a gut feeling. You have a gut instinct that this piece of writing has suddenly ascended into storyhood. And that does take a little work, I think, at the front end. You know, our basic storytelling gland has to do with curiosity about how things turn out. I think the novel services that more directly. In the story form, there's the curiosity about what happens on the surface of the story, but the form actually thrives on something else, which is a curiosity about what's happening in what I call the understory. So you're reading the surface story and things are happening. But meanwhile, underneath, there's a kind of a beautiful metaphorical submarine that's coming up, which is what the story is really about. And often the writer doesn't even know it until the last minute. So that particular experience of having the understory come up and enlighten the whole proceeding is subtle. And it's I think it's something you have to develop an acquaintance with, which of course takes reading a lot of stories. Mm-hmm. And in the early phase of reading stories, you might not even like them. You know, when I first read Chekhov all those years ago, I didn't really get it. But there's, of course, that sort of holy state where you say, okay, I'm the acolyte here. So I, it's not the story's job to convince me. I've got to try to, you know, become a friend to the story, uh, which takes, you know, takes some time. Well, you mentioned that Tolstoy initially criticizing Chekhov for having no very definite attitude to life, but then sort of say that's what makes him great. Do you think that, that the short story sort of rewards ambiguity more than didacticism? That, that, that reaction you sometimes have with a short story where you end it and you go, huh, like I'm not quite sure what I was saying and you have to kind of think about it more. That's that's sort of key to the form. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. Especially because, you know, Chekhov was such a big influence and the main takeaway from a Chekhov story is exactly that feeling of ambiguity that you're talking about. That, you know, in a Chekhov story, he said, I don't have to answer the question. I just have to formulate it correctly. So you often come away saying, what is it that you wanted me to think? So I think that's true. But there are other kinds of stories, I think, that can be a little more didactic. But I think the main flavor of the story is always complication. And it's interesting because in this time especially, you know, there are people walking the face of the earth about whom complicated feelings are hard to manage. And and they might not even be useful. If there's a 
psychopathic killer approaching you, is it good to be empathetic? Is it good to understand his point of view? It probably is, but not to the extent that it would paralyze you. So I think that's one of the uh, the things about fiction that about short fiction. It's really a long game. It's it's a game for someone who has time to and bandwidth to nurture empathy and uh, ambiguity and stuff. And, and at certain times in history, it might be that it doesn't feel quite didactic enough. And you, you describe your own process of sort of revision after revision until that you're finally happy with the story and, and you're going over and over those sentences. But then in the last story in there, Tolstoy's uh, Alyosha the Pot, where apparently you wrote it in one day and never went back to it. Do you have to be Tolstoy to do that and have something worth reading? I mean, is that very rare? Actually, I don't think so. I mean, one of the things I'm learning as I get older is that the, you know, the muses will will show up in different forms in different days. So there are definitely times where I've had sat down and written three or four paragraphs that I, I don't touch again. They, they they end up in the final draft. So I think, you know, the mastery in, in writing fiction such as it is, is to sort of say, I will accept any blessings that come my way. And if something comes to me whole like that, I'm not going to mess it up by revising it just because that's my posture, you know, it's because that's my credo. But I, I th- and I think that tends to happen more though. Well, in my case, it's, it's happening more often now that I've been manically revising for 900 years. That sort of natural feeling, uh, the feeling of something coming out whole didn't happen to me much when I was younger, or rather I thought it did when I was younger. There were whole novels that came out without any rewriting uh, that are now in the dustbin. So I think, I think that's the beauty of the, of the craft is you, there really isn't any literally zero uh, rules that you can live by all the time. That when you live by mm-hmm. a rule, you're you're on the way to being a hack. So every story has to, you have to throw all the tools away and come into it like a complete beginner, which is lovely. You know, it's a lovely practice, especially for somebody getting older, you know, where it gets harder to be fresh to the world in that way because you've seen so much of it. And, you, and as an older person, you're invested in knowing something and being somewhat smarter than the younger people and all that garbage. Uh, but art is a, is just something that says you're all babies. You're all little tiny babies. You've got to learn the language over again and come into a completely foreign room and still somehow manage to, to be comfortable. And in terms of your own revision, I can imagine that sometimes, you know, if a story doesn't feel like it's not working and then it gets set aside for several years, then it, you know, that that's where it, that's where it lies. That's where it dies. Um, and it takes something for you to sort of go back to it. So I wonder what was the longest a story had taken you from that a first draft to, to publication, presumably with quite a hiatus in the middle. Fourteen years, and that was a story called the Semple Girl Diaries, which is in tenth of December. Uh, yeah, and thanks for bringing up that painful subject. No, <laughs> no it, was, it was fourteen years with lots of breaks, and and as you say, putting it away, not quite despairing of it, but saying I I cannot break the code on this thing right now. Let's not waste any more time. And then coming back to it again. And, you know, when you, when you do that, you're coming back to it as a slightly different writer. You've, you've learned some things. You forgot some things. You also have that incredible blessing of if something's been sitting around for six months and you haven't looked at it and you come back to it, you have that blessing of seeing it the way a stranger would. And its, it's assets and its liabilities present very clearly to you without the usual attachment that you'd have if you've been working on, you know, straight for, for a month or something like that. And you also, in the, in the book, when you talk about teaching, you revisit an idea that I first read in your introduction to Huckleberry Finn, that when we, what we often see as moral failings in a writer, you know, racism or misogyny, whatever, are really sort of technical failings to do with a, a lack of empathy. And I feel like over the last few years in particular, the discussion around 
you know, writers with problematic ideas or writers very much of their time or whatever has become more heated. So do you think that, do you find that is the most productive way to discuss the issue with students? Yes. It's, it's, I mean, it's kind of the only way and it's their job to uh, recognize that every quality a work of fiction has is completely rooted in the line to line progress of the story. So th- there'll be workshops where uh, a story will go around and we read it and we come in the next week and someone will say, this is a sexist story. And you know, it, it often is. If somebody has that feeling, it, there, it probably is. That comment just, you know, sits on the table like a bad fish. I mean, there's nothing to be done with it except the person who's accused of it feels ashamed and defensive and we're done. So what I always, you know, encourage the, the right, the, the critics to say is, okay, if you feel a story is sexist or racist or derivative or whatever it is, show me where it starts, show me where that feeling started. And then you can have a discussion. And what happens in, in analyzing fiction, the more specific you can be, show me the line, show me, be very specific and articulate about your reaction. The more specific you can be, um, the less uh, hurtfully judgmental you are. You know, the, 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 the conversation actually moves toward a more technical basis, which is, for, of course, easier for the person being criticized to hear, which we maybe don't care about that much, but it's then easier for that person to proceed. And it also tells us that when we feel something like uh, a story or even a person is racist, sexist, homophobic, whatever, that label can be broken down and reduced into smaller descriptors. And so in the same way that if you said, you know, my car is crap, that's probably true. It could be true. But then if, if a mechanic starts to look at the car, they find out that actually most of the car isn't crap, but there's a, there's a crap portion of it. <laughs> and then suddenly it's, it's workable. Now I don't put any, you know, on the person who feels that a story is sexist or racist, I don't have any expectation that they should have to do the work of pointing it out. But since we're there in class, it's a great exercise because if you learn to read that closely in search of say a sexist moment, you're learning to read closely period. And whatever quality your story has, that is maybe not desirable. You know, maybe it's just boring or maybe it's didactic or something that close reading is, is the way to fix it. So to me, it's a, it's a way of empowering everybody to say, look, you know, a story is not a monolithic whole that comes out of the writer's moral qualities. It's a, it's a kind of a trick. It's kind of a magic trick made of a bunch of little fragments of language. So it's, it's workable. You know, so much frustration here politically has to do with people feeling offended from, from either side of the spectrum, but not being able to articulate it. And one of the kind of corny old blessings of literature is it teaches us to have a feeling, validate the feeling, and then articulate the feeling, which I would contend is just a really powerful thing for a person to be able to do. Yeah, because I, I love that point that, that, that if, you're, if you feel that a writer, male writer, isn't very interested in women, that you can sort of almost make a moral judgment and go, well, you know, and, and sort of say that they're bad. Um, but but really, as a reader, the problem is that you've missed out on a on a more fully rounded female character. That it's you know it's almost like separating those two things. Or you know the other thing is, and this is important. I think could there be a story from the point of view of a misogynist? Of course, you know they exist. God knows. So it's interesting if the writer is unwittingly exhibiting misogynistic characteristics, and you point it out then there's an opportunity for him to do a sort of move that goes, oh, oh yeah, right. It's not me. It's the character. 
he manifested misogynistic statements, but now he's distancing himself from them by attributing to somebody else. And that's actually really politically interesting, you know, just I mean, I'm sure none of us are pure of incorrect or unfortunate bias that we've somehow picked up from the culture. I mean, of course, well, in fiction, if those things make an appearance and you recognize it, then there's a formal way for you to distance and critique. And, and there's an aesthetic value in this, which is it then makes that thing part of the aesthetic responsiveness of the story. The story, like in, in the book, there's a story called Gooseberries by Chekhov. And it's an elaborate illustration of this principle. You know, there's, there's a guy who makes a big high tone moral speech about happiness and how happiness is actually decadent. And then the story formally just picks away at that. It shows that he's inconsistent. It shows that he's kind of thoughtless. And so the result is that kind of ambiguity we talked about later. But it has to do with the story being aware of what the story itself has already done and then using that as it goes ahead. So have you ever been morally revolted by a book and just thought that the view, this this author's view of the world is just so repellent to me that I can't find anything useful in it? Yes, yes. I mean, you know, Mein Kampf. <laughs> you know, or, uh, I mean, <laughs> or, or, but, but I mean, even on a, on a smaller level, um, I always mispronounce his name, but the French writer uh, Celine, is that C-E-L-I-N-E? Terrible person, terrible anti-Semite. I didn't know that because I'd never finished his book. And I, I, what happened was I was young and I was about to apply to grad school and I'd heard about the book and I picked it up in the library in Texas and I read the first page and it blew my mind just in the style, the kind of manic, very personal, intimate style. I said to myself, I got to read this book, put it on the shelf. I've never gone back to it. But reading that language really helped me, you know? So yeah, I think a book can be totally nonsense. It totally can be totally bad. I, I'm not sure here. I'm going to, I'll go on thin ice and say, I don't think a truly good book has that quality, but I might, I might be wrong about that. Yeah. Have you, have you had that feeling? I did have to read for, uh, for, for a kind of work thing. Uh, not so long ago, I read Anthem by Ayn Rand and I'd never oh. read her before. And I just thought this is, this view of the world is so antithetical to mine that, that I, I, t- I really took quite strongly against it, but wasn't sure whether that was a, you know, I was being too knee-jerk. No, no, she's that's a great example. And I, you know, as you said, I loved her when I was a young person and hadn't read anything else. And I think what I responded to was her kind of novelistic qualities. There were, there were rooms and there were people and there was talking. Uh, and then when you dig down through any of those books, they're 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 based on a really uh, idiotic worldview. So I haven't read her in a while, <laughs> but I did. I wrote a, a, a comedy piece called I, I, I Was Ayn Rand's Lover, in which I, you know, pretend that she was my lover when I was a teenager and then the Republican Paul Ryan uh, came and stole her away from me at prom night or something. But I went back and looked at some of that. And I, and I think it, it would be an interesting essay that I, that I will never write. But to look at that, those books line by line, you can see the falsity in the prose. There, there are just, there's just, it's like Orwell said in politics in the English language, you can read the, the phrases and be aware that you're being lied to. But I didn't feel that way at 20, you know, and so that's, a, you know, an interesting thought right now in America is, are, are we, you know, we've minimized the power of literature here for a long time. It's, it's almost seen as kind of a, you know, a little adorable hobby that some nerds do on the side. But I would argue that the, that ability to read a few sentences of prose and notice falseness or manipulation in it is a really important skill that reading fiction helps us with because fiction's all made up. And if it's drawing you in, 
and you're a reasonable person and a reasonable reader, it's drawing you in because there are embedded truths in it. And your mind recognizes the truth and responds to it and, and reads. So I would argue that on a subtle level, reading good fiction is a way of, of improving what Hemingway called your, your, your shit detector. You know, you, you read a bad <laughs> sentence and you can say, huh, there's something false about that. Whereas, you know, if you're somebody who is inclined to attack the capital on the basis of a totally spurious story being told by a very energetic right-wing media, somewhere along the line, you lost or failed to develop that ability, which is why those lies get into your head and they make you uh, insane and, and make you start become violent, even though uh, in your life to that point, you, you hadn't been violent. Talking of lies, um, in, uh, during the George Bush administration, Junior, you wrote a few things which kind of dealt with, alluded to, you know, satirized George Bush and the Iraq war. Um, but as far as I know, with, with, with Trump, it was just a, a nonfiction piece for the New Yorker. Was he harder to write about? Did he, did he, was he less likely to inspire fiction or were you just at a different stage of your life where you just didn't need that in your work, that presence? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I did write one uh, satirical piece about him that was not very good. Uh, it was in the New Yorker, but I didn't really love it. And it had absolutely no effect on anybody because, you know, the, the sides are so divided now that a piece of satire will only sort of delight the, the choir and the other side isn't even reading it. I, I wrote, actually, there's a story that I had in the New Yorker last year called Love Letter, which is a I mean, it's a short story. It's it's not satirical, and it's just a kind of a slightly futuristic idea of what life would be like in a in a Trump a second Trump administration. But he's not mentioned by name. And the real gist of the story is that there's this grandfather who's writing to his grandson, and it sounds like the grandson is starting to get involved in a kind of resistance movement. And the grandfather, who's basically just a slightly changed version of me, is sort of lightly and with some shame advising him not to do it. You know, so that was a little more complicated, but that was the most satisfying piece I wrote on Trump other than the nonfiction. I think I heard someone say that, you know, when you have a, an administration or a movement that rejects enlightenment values, they're not really susceptible to satire. And I think that's what I felt with Trump. You know, you, I could write the best piece of satire in the world and it wasn't getting in anywhere. Well, to me, it, may, it just made me think you're going to have to bring the higher levels of your talent to this not just the funny kind of slapstick stuff that I use with Bush. Uh, cause you know, cause Bush, if you, if I don't think Bush would like it, if you call him a liar, I think he would push back on that and he might be able to make a, I think a good case that he wasn't, or he wasn't intentionally lying or whatever. Trump just doesn't care. He, I, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's a whole different animal. And I think the, the satirical structure here really struggle with it. The late night shows and so on that, you know, they did a certain service by, by continually pinning them to the carpet, you know, but I can, I know a lot of Trump supporters and I can guarantee that nobody is, that, that needle is not moved by a piece of satire or a, a, a stand-up comedy routine. They, they just don't care. They're way past that point. Uh, are you more optimistic with the change of presidency or do you think that, that just looking deeper that this sort of damage is, um, is sort of unchanged by the, by the change of president? You know, one of the things I'm trying to do is, is say, I don't know more often because I really don't. I think we're in such <laughs> uncharted territory here where I don't think anybody knows what's going on. And, you know, and that was proved to me most dramatically on, on, on the election night two, 2016. So I've been thinking, you know, like if a Cro-Magnon person picked up a grenade, you know, thinking it's a pineapple and it blew up, 
that's not really the grenade's fault. You know, that's the Cro-Magnon person had a too small understanding of the world. So as a, as a novelist or a fiction writer, my job is to try to get myself into a state where it, the world doesn't surprise me because I understand it so well. So I'm lately, I'm just noticing a series of grenades going off in my face and, and actually, but you know, to answer the question in a more relative way, I'm not encouraged. I, I love Biden. I think he's an amazing person. I think he's, he's somebody who is going to continue to surpass expectations. He's got a real deep moral core, very smart guy. But on the other hand, this thing that Trump, you know, dug out of the backyard is not going away and it's getting stronger. I mean, he, he got so many more votes this time than last time. And even anecdotally in my circle of people I know would not have admitted to voting for him in 2016 are now very verbal fans of his. I'm not pessimistic, but I'm, I'm watching. I'm working harder to resist my natural optimism. You know, that when my guy is in charge, I feel naturally optimistic. But as I found out in 2016, there are all kinds of underground things going on that I'm not privy to. It's like the understory. Yeah, the understory. Exactly right. So so my resolution is to try to be a little more watchful of that and and, um, listen a little better. Finally, Lincoln in the Bardo was your first novel, extremely well received. Now you've been digging back into the kind of, I suppose, the mechanics of the short story with this. Do you have to decide? Do you have to decide like, where your energies are going? Are they going into the short fiction, or are they going to go into another novel? Or can can you can you sort of keep both of those sort of pots simmering at the same time? No, I can't. It's definitely a decision, but it's kind of an ad hoc decision that's that's already been made because I started writing stories actually during Lincoln, I guess, or maybe even before it. So I have almost a whole book of stories that I've been writing even while doing this, this Russian book. You know, the Lincoln novel, I really had given up that I on the idea that I'd ever write a novel. And I, that one just kind of came to the door and insisted. So I'm, I have a sort of mental note to not try, quote unquote, not try to write a novel. But if one, you know, comes to the door in that forceful way, I'll do it. But in the meantime, I'm still really interested in the story and you know, I'm finding partly inspired by this Russian book that that form is just unlimited. You can do anything with it. And I still would say in our time, you know, such a fragmented, crazy time, the story is really nimble in that, you know, in a collection, you can present 12 completely different worlds, not only in the details of the world, but in the the voice of the person observing the world. And I would say that's probably the most, uh, truthful representation of the way the world is. You know, it's not just that, that you and I are thinking about different topics in the same language, but we're thinking about different topics in completely different languages with completely different um, experiential basis and increasingly with <laughs> different factual basis. So the for, the story collection makes a really nice way to, to model or to mimic that kind of crazy uh, variety. Well, I look forward to it. Thanks so much for joining me, George Londres. You're a wonderful interviewer. Thank you so much for your time. And thanks to you for listening. A Swim in a Pond in the Rain is out now, published by Bloomsbury. Take care and see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.